The Guardian. I'm Phoebe Greenwood. Welcome to the audio telling of a remarkable story uncovered by Guardian journalists Shiv Malik, Spencer Ackerman and Mustafa Khalili. A dramatic, covert plot to save Peter Kassig from his tragic death at the hands of ISIS. To read the story in full, just go to theguardian.com where we also have a video explainer. A while ago we were informed that our beloved son, Abdul Rahman, no longer walks this earth. Our hearts are battered, but they will mend. The world is broken, but it will be healed in the end. And good will prevail as the one God of many names will prevail. In November, Peter Abdul Rahman Kasig became the fifth Western hostage to be killed by ISIS. His parents, Ed and Paula, spoke of their loss in the days following his execution. Please pray for Abdul Rahman, or Pete, if that's how you know him, at sunset this evening. Pray also for all people in Syria, in Iraq, and around the world that are held against their will. When his parents spoke so movingly about Peter, they had no idea there had been an extraordinary failed effort to save his life involving a controversial New York lawyer, the FBI, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS's most senior spiritual leader. I'm Mustafa Khalili, and I'm multimedia news editor at The Guardian. I first heard about the story when Shiv came very excitedly up to my desk, brandishing a PDF document, saying that these were emails that he'd received. We went off to a little corner of the office and sat down, and um, there unfolded in front of me was this unbelievable story. My first reaction was one of disbelief, but yet absolutely fascinated by this tale of suspense and heroism and despair and tragedy. The Guardian first learned about the remarkable covert mission when journalist and Middle East expert Ali Yunus contacted Shiv Malik, a Guardian reporter. I was speaking to Ali Yunus um, about a month ago now. He's one of the other reporters on the story. My name is Ali Yunus. I am a US uh, journalist. And, uh, about a week later, then he called me up uh, out of the blue saying there was this story that he'd been sitting on all this time. I was doing a story on uh, Abu Qatada, one of the biggest Salafist jihadist names in the Salafist uh, world. So I was uh, meeting at his house. In one of those meetings, I called Abu Muhammad al-Makdisi, who was uh, one of the you know, jihadist world best-known ideologue and theorists, uh, who invited me to come and meet him at Abu Qatada. And there, I met U.S. Attorney Stanley Cohen. Stanley Cohen is a polarizing figure. For 30 years, he's built a controversial reputation on his defense of clients, including Osama bin Laden's son-in-law, Abu Hayth, the Hamas leadership, who he considers friends, and a host of anarchic left-wing clients, including the Occupy movement. His heart really is in the Palestinian movement for freedom, which is, one could say, odd, because he's Jewish. One could also say it's not odd. And he famously defended Hamas, a senior official called Abu Mazruk, about uh, 20 years ago now. He managed to actually get this guy off 
certain charges. But then he also, on the other hand, defends black bloc anarchists and Occupy and uh, left-wing activists from across the spectrum in that, in that regards as well. He's funny, he's flamboyant, just in the way he talks. He, as they say in, in journalism, he gives good quotes. He's got this wonderful sort of shock of hair, his, his beard and, and his hair. It was incredibly wild, sort of encircle his face like a sort of a mane, if you want. He looks like a sort of a biblical sage in a pinstripe suit. And he's got this weird sort of ponytail as well at the back, uh, which is a kind of a motif, I guess, of his 1960s human rights. He's got a bit of a hippie bit about him as well. So it kind of all comes together in this weird, peculiar fashion. In early October, Cohen was winding down his practice to prepare to go to jail. In January, he'll start an 18-month sentence in federal prison after pleading guilty to obstructing the IRS and failing to file a tax return. He had enough on his plate without agreeing to take on ISIS in a mission to save Peter Kasich's life. But on October 3rd, he received a phone call from two Palestinians who had met Kasich when he was doing aid work in Lebanon, asking for Cohen's help to save his life. And they'd seen the video of him being threatened. It was the video in which Alan Henning was beheaded. And at the end of that video, Kasich is threatened by the person uh, we've come to know in the British militant known as Jihadi John. Uh, and the idea being that, you know, Kasich's next in line to be beheaded. And I think, uh, and these two Palestinians, they knew him, they, they were shocked and horrified, and they wanted to desperately do something. Um, and he actually turned them down. He said, look, I've got stuff to do. I've got a trial coming up. And then he got another call. Just days later, photojournalist John Penley called with the same request. And Cohen said, it feels like fate. I get two calls in one week asking me, I've got nothing to do with Kasich, I don't know the guy. Maybe I should do something. But what finally convinced Cohen to take on Kasich's cause was the letter he sent to his parents from captivity. Just know I'm with you. Every stream, every lake, every field and river, in the woods and in the hills, in all the places you showed me, I love you. Cohen read that letter and he was incredibly touched. He said he started to just well up. He saw uh, himself in, in Kasich. He said, well, look, you know, if I was a kid, as he put it, you know, 25, 26 today, um, I'd probably go off to the Middle East and try and help with refugee camps uh, and try and do something there. And that could have been me as a hostage. Cohen had well-established links to the world of jihad among al-Qaeda veterans. The problem he faced was getting to ISIS an al-Qaeda offshoot that had split violently from the organization in a power struggle for territory in Syria. They view ISIS as very evil. Journalist Ali Youssef. Because according to them, what ISIS is doing in terms of beheading, uh, bloodletting, Shia, Sunni, killing each other, really deviate from the purity of the higher purpose of establishing an Islamic state as they see it. And Al-Qaeda has, on several occasions, called them as thugs, gangsters. And eventually, well, they, will, they will disappear because they will cannibalize each other because they're not grounded in good religious teachings. So from, from a Western perspective, um, these arguments between Al-Qaeda and ISIS over strategy and roles and the limits of extremism may appear to be kind of a conflict over the finer points of the same hideous ideology. 
However, for ISIS, these accusations and these statements from Qatar and Maqdisi have sparked a real crisis of confidence. And um, the terrorist group might be the world's richest and most dangerous Islamist organization. However, for a theocratic movement, not having enough religious legitimacy is really a big deal. Cohen's first move was to approach a former Guantanamo inmate he had met during the Abu Haith trial. He was feeling out whether Al-Qaeda might be willing to help him save Kasig, and he received an unequivocal response. We'd like to save this guy. On October 13th, Stanley Cohen flew to Kuwait to meet his contact, whom he'd codenamed Food. And he was called Food because every time Cohen uh, and Marwan would kind of arrive in the room and he would arrive in the room, there'd be suddenly, like magic, uh, you know, grilled lobster and meats and fish and all sorts of exotic sort of dishes uh, would suddenly appear like magic. Before he could move any further forward with his plan, Cohen knew that for the first time in 30 years, he needed to get the US authorities on his side. He contacted an assistant state's attorney who put him in touch with an FBI counter-terrorism official who The Guardian is calling Mike. First of all, he didn't want to be landed with material support charges. You know, if you go and talk to terrorists and you're not their official client, then it's possible that they may look at his emails or whatever it was and then say, well, look, hang on, maybe you were trying to do X, Y, and Z instead or try and give ISIS money or whatever it might be. So he was worried about that. He was also worried about screwing things up. There's a life at stake. You don't want to just stumble into something blindly. October 18th SMS from Stanley Cohen to Mike. Forget about risk. That's the least of it, and much less important to me than 25 years of work, reputation, credibility, and a future in the region gone. I am doing this only to try to save someone's life and to hopefully help to stave off future such incidents, not to build a case, to earn a reward, to find my way into a 302, or to ruin my credibility as an attorney, or more important, as a person in a region filled with suspicion and one that I have spent what seems like a lifetime in. As a Westerner and a Jew, it has been a long struggle and test to prove to many folks that are suspicious of my motives, that they are good. One of the first things I mentioned to you was that I move in my own way without surveillance. Sorry, that cannot change. I am either trusted or not, effective or not. Who else would you ultimately rely upon if not someone who has these types of unsavory, uh, from the U.S.'s perspective, connections? And that was something that Stanley Cohen had. Spencer Ackerman is the national security editor for Guardian U.S. He covered the FBI's role in this story. The FBI takes all instances of U.S. personnel kidnapped overseas very seriously. It's not totally exceptional that they would have been invested and hopeful, if perhaps skeptical, that this wild, unlikely effort to free Cassidy involving the most absolutely unexpected cast of characters would have yielded fruit. There was apparently some, I would describe, white boy from Princeton, I assume from the State Department or Department of Justice, who quipped, 
We're sending a Jewish anarchist lawyer who represents Hamas to the Middle East to negotiate with ISIS and Al-Qaeda over Kassig. Are we kidding? And apparently some serious true believer said, who the fuck else would we send? You could also turn that around and ask, uh, why did Stanley Cohen trust the FBI? Uh, This was a situation in which young American of tremendous distinction, a man who had found so many different ways over the course of his young life uh, to serve other people, were bound together in order to get a man like that freed. And uh, in those kinds of exceptional circumstances, you can see exceptional coalitions come together. Mike, the assistant state's attorney, and Cohen nutted out the terms of their agreement in a series of rapid conference calls. Cohen was travelling as a private citizen. The FBI could promise nothing in return for Kassig's release. Cohen asked Mike to sanction an approach to Sheikh Mohammed al-Makdisi in Jordan, al-Qaeda's spiritual leader. Peter Kassig's release could only be negotiated among the most senior Salafist sheikhs and only someone of Magdisi's standing could bend the ear of his former protégé and ISIS leader, Turki bin Ali. Cohen flew to Jordan, where he met Magdisi and his good friend Abu Qatada, a senior Salafist cleric recently cleared of terrorism charges. You know, he is soft-spoken, he is generous, he always offers you tea or coffee and he brings it to, he brings it to you himself from my discussions with him, and I found him really surprisingly moderate, so to speak, in modern terms. He told me, Apokatara today is not Apokatara 20 years ago. Well, I'm not, you see, I think what I come to realize, because I met other people, other leaders, Salafist leaders here in Jordan uh, and, and elsewhere, what, what's shocking is that when you meet with these guys, you find them modest, you find them shockingly honest, and accommodating and very nice. And this is, I understand, why Stanley Cohen, you know, grew to be fond of al Makdisi. Stanley certainly doesn't have the same perspective on Makdisi's ideology that um, other people do. And, you know, if you dig down into it, I don't think uh, human rights lawyers would certainly want to promote Makdisi's um, outlook on the world, which is basically, uh, if you're Muslim and you also subscribe to democratic ideals, you should be killed. That's what he, he wrote that uh, 10, 20 years ago. Well, I think um, Stanley and Mukhtasi actually got on. You know, I, they're of the same age, and that helped forge and cement that relationship, which he thought would lead to the rescue of Kasich. During this investigation, I found what al Mukhtasi was trying to do for Kasich was not isolated. So I have come to see documents in which they supported the view that al Mukhtasi was trying to help Kasich not as an isolated or favor he was to, to do for Cohen or the U.S., this was a moral stand he had taken. For example, other students of his, other people who respect him, who are asking his opinion, asking for fatwa to go ahead and kill a police officer or an army officer or blow up a cinema or blow up a bar. Uh, and he said totally no. So in his view, he argues, these acts will never help us. And, and as an evidence, they told me that they have helped release in Western hostages who were imprisoned in Yemen a few years back. With Magdasi on side, the next hurdle was how to rebuild the burned bridges of communication between him and Turkey Bin Ali. So he enlisted the help of his wife and family. Turkey Bin Ali, who was with uh, a pupil of uh, a student of Al Magdasi, and who, who was called Magdasi Jr. So they have some connections with Turkey Bin Ali, who moved to the other side to join ISIS. 
and become a highly uh, official uh, jurist and a judge uh, for ISIS. So they knew these guys from before. So they have a mutual respect. From that point that they thought we could connect with these guys in trying to help save Kasich. And that's really uh, the critical point of the negotiation. Magdasi was risking a lot by striking up a dialogue with Bin Ali. He had just been released from prison in Jordan and didn't want to go back. Cohen sent a message to Mike to see what could be arranged. Would it be possible for you folks to reach out to Jordanian intelligence to ask them to permit a highly respected Salafist sheikh who has been very critical, and publicly so, of ISIS, to place a call to another Salafist sheikh, who he is close to and is respected by ISIS, to urge that hostages who are journalists, aid workers, and especially Muslims cannot be held, let alone harmed, and that this hostage should be released on two of those three grounds? When Makdasi was conducting the phone calls with Turkey Ben Ali. And initially, it was just rebuilding these bridges, reestablish that trust between the teacher and the student. And I think what happened was that al see he was easing his way and trying to be nice, trying to be conciliatory to Turkey Ben Ali, who represented ISIS of you. Because al see would represent a high-value uh, person, a prize, a major prize, if he would jump ship and say something good about ISIS. Um, I understand that there was actually, it was the wives of both partners, of of both Turkey Ben Ali and Magdasi, who made the first approaches. And then uh, how did they communicate? That all these groups now heavily utilizing social media. This communication happened after Cohen and uh, Magdasi went and bought a, a cell phone and downloaded the WhatsApp application. And, of course, the other line of communication because of the family ties. Remember, uh, all these selfies are not very large in numbers. They are very few. And a lot of times they marry from each other because of the trust. So informality also can be very helpful in pushing the agendas forward by involving the lives and, and utilizing the shared history together. So I was not surprised that Al-Makdisi have involved his family On the 23rd of October, Mike texted Cohen. Was just told by my co-worker in the country you're in. The call is a go. Magdasi's negotiation with Bin Ali could go ahead. As the two sheikhs traded messages, Cohen grew hopeful. I am optimistic. More important, the players are, and Kassig still alive. There is support among both the religious heavyweights and some of the important guys on the ground. And I was told uh, last week... Uh, Peter Catholic could have been saved. They were very sure they could save him. And that's how sure Amakdasi was, and this that they could have produced and saved the life of Peter Catholic. At the end of October, his contact in Kuwait got in touch. He had promising news and wanted Cohen to travel back. But on the day before Cohen was due to fly to Kuwait, Magdasi received a call from Jordanian intelligence calling him in for questioning. They said they want to see him tomorrow. Odd. Earlier today, things appeared very good locally. Cohen knew that he was going to visit the intelligence services the night before. Uh, Maktasi had said, you know, everything's going well with the negotiations. Tomorrow I'm going to talk um, with Bin Ali about Kasig, and I think he will release him. That's what he says to Cohen. 
Cohen then we can see from the emails writes to his the FBI official in this story and says, "Hey, what's up? Muktasi's been called in uh, by these local guys in Amman." And uh, the agent says, uh, "You know, he'd try and find out what's going on." Cohen then has to leave for Kuwait uh, to go back to speak to some other people involved in these negotiations. As soon as he leaves the country, pretty much within hours, uh, Muktasi is then arrested and charged with what one could describe as kind of internet terrorism, and um, uh, i.e. For, for stuff that he'd written and for promoting violent views, which is not new. And, um, and it was a post from a month ago. Yeah, I know from Magdus' son, I talked to, uh, I've talked to Abuqtada, I've talked to people who were talked to the Georgian intelligence, who told me that Magdus was arrested for something he said about reconciliation or a truce between al-Nusra or al-Qaeda and ISIS. And that presented a violation of a new Jordanian law that forbade the communication with any terrorist group. So al-Maqdisi, from a technical point of view of the Jordanian intelligence or Jordanian law enforcement, he violated the law. Uh, that said, however, uh, these negotiations, al-Maqdisi was authorized to speak to Turkey bin Ali. And the evidence we are publishing shows that the U.S. have contacted the Jordanians who did not respond, and the U.S. intelligence responded back saying, well, we can't do anything about it because the Jordanians did not listen to us. The effort that Cohen was putting together more or less collapsed with Magdasi's arrest. What was actually agreed between the Jordanian government, the FBI, counterterrorism agents, and Cohen with regards Magdasi that we're aware of? My understanding is that there never was any agreement. Uh, between the Jordanians and the U.S. to free Magdasi or to get this channel on track. When the Jordanians arrested Magdasi, whether they knew it would have this effect or not, it effectively destroyed the channel, that there would be no way that Cohen's interlocutors in the jihadist circles in the Middle East would have possibly trusted this effort once Magdasi was ready to go so far out on a limb and then found himself uh, in jail. With Magdasi's arrest, all trust the sheikhs had had in Cohen evaporated. The negotiations between al-Qaeda and ISIS collapsed. The perception of Cohen was suspicion, because he was a guy who looked weird to them and who talked a lot about himself. That was what said. So Al-Qaeda told me that he viewed Cohen with suspicion, that he can't be on his own, and there's something he smelled conspiracy went there. There I am, for the first time in 30 years, defending the U.S. government, wanting to vomit, saying, no, I'm telling you, I believe the U.S. was totally caught with its drawers down. With the negotiations abandoned, Cohn returned to the U.S., but continued to check in daily for updates on Kasig. The urgent priority now was to secure Magdasi's release. Then on October 30th, he texted Mike. Any chance of getting the Sheikh released on his own recognizance, ASAP, or on a token bail? I understand there's typically a 15-day period that is routinely extended. It would be a huge move for a relatively minor step and show some good faith that some guys really think is lacking.
At 5.25am on Sunday 16th of November, Cohen woke to an email from Mike. We're hearing terrible news. Wanted to know if you heard anything from your contacts. Oh my God, just woke up to see your message. I've reached out. We'll get back to you as soon as I hear. 7.12 a.m. Copy. News agencies are indicating he was killed with others. We're trying to authenticate the video. Stanley to Mike, 7.24 a.m. Please let me know if verified. This is absolutely terrible indeed. We begin with some grim news from Syria. Intelligence officials are investigating a video that was posted online purportedly by ISIS that claims to show that captured U.S. aid worker Peter Kasich has been killed. ISIS released a video announcing Kasich's execution. This is Peter Edward Kasich, a U.S. citizen of your country. Peter who fought against the Muslims in Iraq while serving as a soldier under the American army doesn't have much to say. For Cohen, the case hasn't ended with Kasich's death. There's something nasty that went on, and he doesn't understand why it was not possible for the U.S. They couldn't get um, one of their, as he terms it, surrogate states, uh, Jordan, and then subsequently Kuwait as well, to do what they wanted in order to save an American's life. So he says, look, well, you know, what are we doing um, doing this if we can't get the Jordanian government to just release this shake and so he can make a few phone calls? For he wants a congressional investigation. He thinks that government officials need to be asked why, you know, the U.S. wasn't able to get Maktasi out of jail. He thinks there was a real opportunity to actually create a channel to ISIS and to the, the top of ISIS's spiritual leadership here. He thinks that would have been very useful. Yep, there's a lot of discussion that points in the direction that, that Maktasi's arrest and subsequent release is predicated on using him as a bargaining tool in further hostage negotiations um, with al-Qaeda. Well, I think what we learned from this is that we missed a golden opportunity to save, first and foremost, Peter Kasich's life. And also, had this been successful, we could have established some sort of links with ISIS to, to prevent future atrocities when it comes to killing Western or Arab or Muslim journalists. The sudden collapse of the effort to save Kasich holds wider significance. It's very clear that the rifts between ISIS and al-Qaeda are, are, are deep. You know, the two groups really hate each other and have been very vocal about it, criticising each other and for what they stand for. This reproachment between the two would have been monumental, would have been massive, for, not just for, for al-Nusra, al-Qaeda and ISIS, but also for the region. And, you know, one has to ask, you know, what would have been the implications of this for the region? So we don't know for sure why Amakdisi was arrested, uh, or was it there some sort of uh, an international plan to prevent uh, Kasich uh, from being released alive and given, eventually given a credit to, to the Salafists and Jihadists and maybe put them in positive light? You know, that would hurt Arab regimes would hurt Arab governments or U.S. government. I don't know. Uh, nobody knows for sure. Perhaps if Kasich was released, Al-Maktasi might look good. Uh, Abu Qatada might look good. Uh, Cohen feels that 
someone somewhere uh, had betrayed this effort um, and sandbagged them, uh, sandbagged the US, sandbagged him personally, and he wants to know why. If you want to follow up on all the content we have on this investigation in text and video form, just go to theguardian.com. I'm Phoebe Greenwood. The producer was Barney Roundtree. And the music was by Ian Chambers and Tigran Hamasyan. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.